I'll tell you, I was thrilled and inspired to see that in less than 48 hours, you had people going from almost complete strangers to forming meaningful bonds over golf. By the end of it, there was a moment. We played the cradle in Pinehurst. We played number two. We had a, a wonderful dinner in, in Donald Ross's backyard Monday night, which was kind of the closing event. And there was a moment where two of our players who were on the Corn Ferry Tour, they had to leave just as dinner was wrapping up because they had an early flight to their next event. And I said, hey, you know, I hate to interrupt. We're winding down as it is, but Billy Tom here and, and Matt Picanso, they need to get out there. They're catching an early flight down to Alabama tomorrow for their tournament. And before I could even finish, like people were standing up, clapping, a bit of a standing ovation, high fives, like, hey, we're rooting for you guys. We're cheering you on. We'll be following along. And again, they didn't know who these players were other than by name 48 hours earlier. And, and that was cool to see. And my goal is to be able to somehow bottle up that experience and scale it so we can help a lot more golfers, but also bring a lot more fans closer to the game. Welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast, where we speak with the influencers, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and innovators who are shaping the future of golf. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're new to the Mod Golf Podcast, thanks very much for joining us and please subscribe to the show so you'll hear all about our upcoming episodes and you can enter our latest golf product giveaway. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today my guest is Donnie Dotson, founder and CEO of Carry, which is a platform that connects up-and-coming, underfunded tour pros to golf-loving investors to dramatically increase their chances of achieving success. So with that introduction, Donnie, hey, thanks very much for joining us today and welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast. Thank you, Colin. It's great to be here. I appreciate you uh, making the time for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you and I met each other, I think, a couple months ago. We reached out, I think, on LinkedIn. Had a great conversation since then and got to get you on the show. As, you know, as I said, right during the opener there that we speak with influencers, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and innovators, and you definitely wear two, three, maybe sometimes all four of those hats. So I think that you're like right in our wheelhouse for the conversation we're going to have. And one thing I, I love, my background, not just in golf innovation and in, in sport tech, but across entrepreneurship, across all sectors. And I sit on, in on many pitch competitions and know a lot of investors and dabble not space myself. And I always thought, it's like, yeah, why doesn't professional sport or elite level sport take more of a startup mindset to help fund things? And here mm -hmm. we are with Carrie. So I can't wait to hear this story of where you are and where you're going. But to start, Donnie, I always ask this icebreaker here just to warm things up a little bit. And that's to find out our guest connectivity with golf. Some of them have never picked up a club before. Some of them are PGA and LPGA tour professionals or have been and everything in between. So love to hear that. Perhaps you can share with us the first time, whatever age that was, that you picked up a golf club and maybe one magical moment, hole in one, close to a hole in one, or something that puts a smile on your face that either you did or you experienced within golf. Sure. Well, I, I would say for as much as I love golf and as long as I've seemingly played it, I, I should be a much better player than I am. But uh, <laughs> to the best of my knowledge, it was a young age when I first had a club put in my hands. My great grandparents were both huge golf fans, players themselves. I grew up in South Florida, so golf was abundant year round. And I can go back and look at photos of me as a toddler. And I've got a sawed off or cut down persimmons woods from my great grandfather. And it's safe to say I was playing from a young age. Never had lessons or anything like that, but always had a club in my hand from a young age and just loved the sport. In terms of a moment, right, when I think about things that bring a smile to my face, there are certainly many from golf. Even as a high handicapper, I have many great moments on the course. But going back to playing as a young kid in South Florida, there was a pitch and putt par three course near our house that my buddies and I would spend a lot of time on during the summer when it was otherwise unoccupied. And we would play this nine hole track three or four times a, a day. And as the hour started getting late, kind of make up holes of our own. But the third hole there, which couldn't have been any more than 105 yards at a significant slope in the green from front to back, I hit 
I don't know. It could have been a five iron. It, it could have been a driver for all I remember now. This time, this is 30 years ago, but it landed on the front of the green and it rolled up just like a putt. It looked for a good two or three seconds like it was going to go in, hits the stick and bounces out to about two or three inches. Otherwise insignificant moment, but 30 years later and many rounds of golf since, I've never been that close to a hole in one. So I always look back on it knowing I was close and that, that my hole in one is, is to come for sure. Oh, absolutely. That is, that is so, so close. And I've had this discussion before on the podcast and even on our YouTube channel when I was doing a review at a local pitch and putt. I've had three hole-in-ones, but they've all been on a pitch and putt between 80 and 120 yards. And people have lashed back saying, that no, doesn't count. That's not a hole-in-one. But most people say they do. And I, I got to take them. I'm going to take them as hole-in-ones. So with a golf experience, you don't necessarily need to be on 7,200 yards, 6,800 yards of some track with a slope of 138 that's out there to crush you and I as higher handicap. So uh, that one is still out there for you. It's going to happen. So let's move into your personal background and how sure. you got into the aha moment and the creation of carry. Because when I, I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs and I have my own experience, you feel a pain points or there's something that affects you personally and a problem that you want to solve that you see that there's a need for. And then you explore that and you kind of take off from there. But from what you just mentioned there, I think it's clear to say that you did not have elite level of professional aspirations in golf. So tell us about that. What led up to this? Because my understanding is that you're a former Marine and you're a CIA trained operations officer. You worked at Goldman Sachs and also at Sports Radar. So tell us about how all these things kind of converged and came together to to seeing the opportunity and then the business model behind Kerry. Yeah, for sure. And I'm glad you point out. I mean, I, as much as I love the sport, never once had uh, professional aspirations and <laughs> I've never played it, you know, outside of the scramble or occasional outing for a good cause. I've never played a real competitive round of golf in my life. So I certainly haven't lived this firsthand. But when I look back, and I get that question a lot, given that I don't come from golf, but when I look back at my career, particularly the last six or seven years since I left the national defense and security space in 2015, to me, it almost seems like Kerry was the inevitable next step. And I say that with, with a few things in mind where... First and foremost, I love golf, as we've talked about quite a bit in just a few minutes here, but love the sport and have always worked in entrepreneurial roles, right? Maybe not as an entrepreneur, but but certainly roles where I was working independently and, and enjoyed that challenge. And so when I went to business school in 2015 at Duke, I went thinking, okay, how do I come out the other side of this two-year program working in sports? ideally golf. And some of my earliest emails in terms of internships or in terms of career opportunities were to different tournament directors. I said, hey, I've never worked a day in golf. I don't know how to get into the industry, but would love to have a chat. It didn't work out. And as you probably know, the MBA recruiting cycle goes quickly. But I was fortunate in many ways, and this is probably the second contributor, is I was fortunate to get a job with Goldman Sachs working in investments for one of the largest teams in the firm in wealth management during what I would call a significant period here in the U.S. in terms of the investment industry. We saw a lot of innovation with regards to crowdfunding. We saw a lot of innovation with the alternative investment space and how people were spending their money, how people were coming into the market, not just from a pure return standpoint, but also how could they invest in something that had experiential component or a personal interest component to it. And then in January of 2020, I was fortunate to join Sport Radar in a very broad business development role that only became more broad because of COVID. Mm -hmm. I was doing everything, whether it was M&A diligence, sales, you know, strategic partnerships. I found myself getting a crash course into the business of sports and some of the underlying economics of leagues, teams, individual athletes, as well as all the different fan engagement platforms that have really sprung up in the U.S. over the last few years, right? Sports betting, fantasy. 
And it was during this time, almost two years ago to the day, when most sports were shut down because of COVID, one of the events that was taking place within the world of developmental golf was the Scottsdale Open. I'm a huge golf fan, but I've never followed some of the lower circuits more than maybe in a corn ferry event here or there. And this Scottsdale Open takes place and you see, in addition to your traditional mini tour player, you see some PGA Tour pros in there. And people are paying attention because of the betting aspect and there wasn't anything else going on. And so I thought, well, if PGA Tour players are playing in this Scottsdale Open with a meaningful prize for developmental tour golf, but certainly not your typical PGA Tour purse, they're going to come in and and they're going to run away with the event. And that's not what happened at all. It was fascinating to me to start digging into who some of these players were and realize that certainly you had some that were still trying to make it to the PGA Tour. You had some that had gone to the best schools and, and had a lot of accolades from their collegiate careers. But then you also had some that were just playing golf on the weekends. And when I saw firsthand like the proximity in terms of talent, I just became fascinated with this world. And that was a bit of a starting point for the genesis of the idea of Kerry. Interesting, interesting. And it's really golf and, and tennis, maybe there's other sports. Those are the two that really come to mind for me at that professional level that are, because we can say really performance-based. You don't play well. You don't make any money. With golf, you're going home on Friday, no matter what tour it is, as compared to the four major sports in North America between the NHL, NBA, NFL, and MLB that, yeah, you've got a contract. doesn't matter if I strike out four times that day, go 0 for 12 uh, on a three-game series. I still get paid. But golf is different as is tennis. And my understanding with tennis, the same type of thing, a lot of great players, young players, and they don't have the ability to financially, just like a startup, basically extend their runway, as we say, get the training, get the opportunities. I heard a story a little while ago, apparently that Novak Djokovic was funded by someone and had the money. It's almost like a bad investor, right? And apparently this person just milked him for years. And it was only a a couple of years ago that they finally legally got out of this unfair relationship. And Mm. you're changing that. So you're democratizing this in the experiential engagement side, as you say. So talk a little bit about that or the kind of the tradition of how players would get invested before if they didn't have money, if they didn't come from money. You got things like Uber before that with taxis, Airbnb with traditional hotels and motels. So it sounds like you're kind of changing this paradigm shift in the way of thinking. So it's exciting. So tell us a bit about that. Sure. And I will say that once I kind of had this aha moment regarding how close the talent is and and how deep the talent is within the top of golf, the next step was to start to talk to players. And I was fortunate through a very early stage, idea stage, business incubator, tackle box to kind of get forced into talking to golfers. And I, I spoke with players from all over the planet. To date, I've probably spoken with well over 400. But in this incubator, I spoke with a good 80 golfers. And I started asking, okay, how do you go from being a great college player to being a PGA? Tour Pro or an LPGA Tour Pro. And sure enough, all the pain points that you illustrated came out time and time again, where you have to kind of fund yourself independently unless you have a wealthy family or an affluent personal financial situation to lean on. You have to fund yourself. That can mean taking out credit card debt or loans you can't afford. That can mean working part-time jobs and, and driving for Uber. Or that can mean transacting with sometimes these shady payday lender type uh, individuals who are out there and they'll, they'll go to the best teaching pros in the country and they'll say, Colin, who's your best stick that has a real financial need? And this 23 or 24 year old that doesn't have a ton of deal flow coming their way, they'll see the terms and they're usually convoluted at best, probably ambiguous as well. And they'll say, sure, you're going to give me $50,000, $100,000 to pursue my career. I'll take it. And you have these unfair relationships to take place. And so we just started looking at how could you take that out of the equation? How could you make these players or enable these players who are truly talented and truly have the passion for making to the top tours? 
How could you give them the runway in a fair and equitable manner while bringing fans closer to the game and making them feel like they're part of the process? Yeah, yeah. I want to circle back on one of the great things that you said there in that last segment. So for anyone out there listening that's considering entrepreneurship, you've got some ideas, and I've seen this all the time, and I was guilty of it years ago too, that you have this idea, you make some assumptions, then you don't test it. You kind of keep it to yourself. Either you don't think it's ready yet, or you don't want to actually get negative feedback. Do what Donnie just stated here. Get out of the building, have conversations as we call customer discovery and user discovery. You've got a two-sided marketplace. So obviously you talk to a lot of people, potential investors, would they be interested in this? And also the players and ask them questions and keep it open-ended to get that feedback rather than trying to sell your idea and convince them of what you've come up with without testing it. Get that feedback. And I'm sure you massaged and pivoted and refined, I guess a good way to put it, your offering to the feedback that you received. So tell us a little bit on the investor side, what they wanted, what they thought was valuable, and for them to get involved seeing this could be a a six to 10-year journey, which is very similar to a return on a startup. And probably Mm -hmm. the failure rate for most players is probably 90% also failure as in the sense of making it to the big show. So tell us a little bit about that, about what you talk to and learn from potential investors. Yeah. and, And that was the more challenging aspect, right? Because you could talk to a lot of golfers, or you could read some of the press that was out there about their journey and experience. But how do you go out and find these people that either have invested or or sponsored golfers previously or or would be inclined to do so? Did a little bit of research. I found some people who, who had made personal investments in golfers previously and was lucky to have some conversations with them. And, and more often than not, what came up was, hey, I did it because I love golf and this player was at my club or I, I knew his or her family and I just wanted to be a part of their story. And if they made it, we had a handshake deal in place where maybe they would pay back a percentage or they would pay back the full amount. But generally it was, how could I help their career and, and get to play golf once or twice? And I said, well, that's great. But the individuals who can write a 25 to 100K check individually, there's only so many of them out there. And and that's not going to accomplish the mission of catering to a broad group of golfers. So then I started calling buddies from business school, buddies from Goldman, who I knew loved golf, probably had some disposable income, but didn't have that ability to, to write those bigger checks. And I said, here's the reality. There are all these really talented players out there that are competing in the minor leagues of golf. You can look at their scores. I don't want to hear anything about course setup. If someone is shooting a 63, that's real golf, right? And so you can look at their scores and you can see like the talent and the aptitude is there. But when I tell you that they're living on fast food because they can't afford otherwise, they're sleeping on basement floors, they're not going about competing as a professional athlete in the way they should. So how could we, how can we help them? Or would you be inclined to want to help them? These call it fan investors or financiers were excited by this problem. They said, that's interesting. I would love to play a role in contributing to a golfer's career, right? If there was a crowdfunding mechanism that was out there. And I said, well, you know, there are a lot of players that will create the GoFundMe and probably 80% of these financier customers that I interviewed said, yeah, I've actually seen a a GoFundMe or two, or or I can go and I, I can see the story on the GoFundMe and good on them for trying. But there's a reason most of them never actually reach probably even halfway to their target. And that's because when people think about their charitable dollars, they more often than not, I've come to learn, they want them for more traditional charity opportunities, right? Right. I know in my experience, when we've done a GoFundMe, it's been to help friends or acquaintances with unexpected funeral costs, medical costs. And those are important things, just like helping someone's career, but obviously they're different buckets. So people routinely responded, roughly 80% would love to help someone. I would do it because I, I love the game and it would be cool to get some additional access and maybe get to play with them every now and then. 
but I couldn't feel as though I'm just giving money away with, without the potential to ever get it back or without the potential to ever have a return. Right, right. And it really is that value exchange that sure. we're always looking for in whatever service product experience that we're creating. There's, there has to be that. We're now going to take a short break to hear about what's new with Zencaster. Did you know that podcast advertising is way more effective than social media and traditional advertising? With 67% of listeners remembering brands and 63% making a purchase after hearing them. I've been using Zencaster since day one of the ModGolf podcast, and I'm excited to tell you about Zencaster's creator network, which makes it easy for brands to connect with podcasters and their audience. Looking to get your product in the hands of people who will love it? Promoting on podcasts is the fastest growing advertising style in the world, being 4.4 times more effective than display ads. With Zencaster's new podcast marketplace, your company can negotiate directly with creators, collaborating with them to get the best bang for your advertising buck. Zencaster's Creator Network is the perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favorite shows. Like me, Zencaster matches you with the best podcasts, so your product gets to the right audience to maximize your advertising campaign budget. Interested in sponsoring the ModGolf podcast or learning how podcast show advertising could benefit your business? Go to zen.ai forward slash modgolf and fill out the contact information so that the Zencaster team can bring your business story to life. That's zen.ai forward slash modgolf to give your product the opportunity to reach a new audience through the podcast they love. So let's dig into that a little bit deeper and, and expand on what you call this experiential engagement and experiential investment. And I believe you've already had a few of these. I think you got eight or nine pro golfers now in your roster, and you've had a few events where potential investors can come out and do a, a meet and greet. So tell us a little bit about that, what the experience is like that engages them and, and it wants them to step in and get involved. Sure. When it comes to experiential engagement, what came out of those customer interviews and what was a driving force for this from a fan engagement perspective was I recognize, and this is what customers were saying to me, I recognize there are people who play a game I love at a very different level. And it would be cool to be able to get some exposure to them early on and to kind of appreciate what it's like as you're trying to climb your way up the ranks and, and make it to the top tours in golf. And so how could we do things like a program or a private lesson and and out of that came this idea that, well, let's do some in-person events. And our first one was at Pinehurst back in late April. And it was a great time. We got together eight of our nine golfers that, that we started with, with a few of our angel investors, some, some partner brands. And the idea was, let's break some bread. Let's celebrate what we've started so far, get people to know each other. And let's see, like in a short time, do people really value this chance to come together as the benefactors from investments or, or runaway in their careers and as the people who are making that possible? I'll tell you, I was thrilled and uh, inspired to see that in, in less than 48 hours, you had largely unknowns go from people going from almost complete strangers to forming meaningful bonds over golf. By the end of it, there was a moment on Monday night. We played the Cradle in Pinehurst. We played number two. We had a, a wonderful dinner in, in Donald Ross's backyard Monday night, which was kind of the closing event. And there was a moment where two of our players who were on the Corn Ferry Tour, they had to leave just as dinner was wrapping up because they had an early flight to their next event. And I said, hey, you know, I hate to interrupt. We're winding down as it is. But Billy Tom here and, and, and Matt Picanso, they need to get out. They're, they're catching an early flight down to Alabama tomorrow for their tournament. And before I could even finish, like people were standing up, clapping, a bit of a standing ovation, high fives, like, hey, we're rooting for you guys. We're, we're cheering you on. We'll be following along. And again, they didn't know who these players were other than by name 48 hours earlier. And, and that was cool to see. And my goal is to be able to somehow bottle up that experience and scale it so we can help a lot more golfers, but also bring a lot more fans closer to the game. 
Yeah, this is good stuff. So on the investment side, is this only open to accredited investors right now? So you're not fully democratized that someone like myself that's not an accredited investor could then jump in. So tell us a little bit about that as to where you are and, and potentially how this could open up more so it can really democratize the investment side and give the everyday person maybe a chance to, to get a fractional investment on one of these players to get in the game. Yeah, fractional investments and allowing non-accredited investors, even though the, the bar on that has moved so many times, but allowing non-accredited investors to be able to participate is is absolutely the goal. And, and we're working towards that with the right legal team in place and the right advisors to make sure that we're checking all the boxes in the appropriate manner. The way we got our start is I raised uh, an initial angel round from angels within my network, and we used a portion of those proceeds to fund these players. But going forward, the next iteration will be to raise the money direct for golfers from a group of accredited investors. And then as we clear the the regulator hurdles, open this up to uh, a much broader fan base. Got it. Got it. For our audience here, could you just define what an accredited investor is? I know the, the, the goalposts keep, keep sure. moving with the SEC, but for where we are right now, can you say what the definition is? There's a few different criteria related to individual or a joint couple's salary as well as their net worth. Or you could have a hall pass if you have certain licenses in place, right? You work in securities, you work in the investment space. But generally, it comes down to what is your annual income or what is your combined income for a household, as well as what is your net worth outside of primary real estate. And again, those goalposts have shifted and I think become a little more accessible, but they're still beyond the typical household income for sure. And our goal is to capitalize on what you've seen with Regulation CF here in the US, where people are able to invest in startups. They're able to invest in digital physical collectibles, regardless of their net worth. Personally, as someone who worked in investments, I I don't think your salary or or net worth is necessarily a good indicator of whether or not you're financially savvy or responsible. I saw many people who were worth a lot of money make some big mistakes and certainly uh, the reverse, right? Right, right. Okay, so we touched on the experiential side of having people lean in and getting involved and that human connection, which seems so fundamentally integrated into what you're doing, which I love. Let's talk about the business side. You are not a not-for-profit. You're not a charity. This has to be a scalable business. What's the revenue model? It's almost like taking this from your original pitch deck, I guess. So what what is your revenue model and how does that scale? How does Carrie make money? So to start, our goal is to really wrap our arms around golf and build a community of golf fans and golfers who want to benefit from what we're doing. And I see the the two-sided marketplace catering to both sides where we will facilitate funding for these golfers and we will take a, a small percentage of the funding on the back end. Any kind of obligation they have to provide a percentage of their future earnings should they make the top tours, that will go directly or get funneled directly to the fan investors once we clear some of the regulatory hurdles for our product. And then on the fan investor side or or financier side, I see the opportunity to build a membership model where the majority of people will come to use carry for free. But if they want to pay a little bit more each month, we can build out some unique experiences, maybe provide some additional opportunities for them in addition to a, a small investment transaction fee anytime they back a player. Gotcha. Gotcha. I think you touched on this a little bit earlier, but to expand on this. So how do you protect your players, your roster of nine players and expanding so they don't run into that Novak Djokovic situation that I mentioned earlier? What is in place here so it's very clear and defined of what your investors get and for how long? 
For sure. And again, a lot of this goes to our, our product development, which is still in the early stages and, and making sure that we do things the right way. I will say for the initial nine, the funding, of, again, came from our company investors who invested in Carry, And there was a screening process for that too, right? We wanted to make sure that people believed in what we're doing, that had the right ethos, touching on a few different aspects of equality, of different things in life that I think are, are important when you're taking money from someone. And so we did a bit of a screening there. And, and I'm proud of, of all of our capital partners in order to legitimize it, to guide what we're doing so that there are clear guide rails in place. All of the players signed contracts with us, which was the result of many months of work with one of the leading income sharing agreement attorneys, ISAs, and, and we built out a contract that makes it very clear. Here's what's expected. Here's what we're providing. Here's your obligations as a player for a defined term and, and a defined period. And obviously communicate that with our initial investors as well. Got it. So it seems to me there's this real opportunity with the platform you're creating with Carrie to embed a really authentic diversity, equity, and inclusion piece in this too. Having in your stable of golfers and investors too, I suppose, a diverse group of underrepresented people in the golf space and players in the golf space, especially on the women's side and people of color. So is that something that you're looking at to be intentional with or is that just naturally propagating itself? Yeah, we've wanted to be very intentional about that. And I'm glad you brought it up because it, it's important to me as, as I think it should be important to everyone. It's not lost on me that when I turn on the golf on the weekend on the PGA Tour, 90% of the players look like me and you, right? And yeah. I think there's an element of socioeconomics at play. There's an element of opportunity and, and, and certainly getting the right exposure to the game at the junior level. But there is an, an access and just economic challenge in place for people, regardless of, of their skin color or gender. And how can we make funds available to anyone who legitimately has the game and the drive to get there, but doesn't have necessarily the means? And, and if that helps the top tours to ultimately look a little bit more like society at large, I would consider that a, a huge win for Carrie and, and what we're doing. But I also recognize overnight, like we're not creating new tour cards or, or an additional amount of tour cards. And it comes down to how people compete on the course. But hopefully we can give people the resources they need so that their game is what determines if they make it, not necessarily their bank account. Got it. Got it. So on that note, what are the criteria that you use to determine and to vet potential players to be on your platform? I'm assuming it's not unlike startup space, whether it's pitch competitions or kind of getting through the funnel of thousands sure. and thousands of players to distill that down to a couple of hundred to the next round or the next crop you're looking to invest. So what's the process that you use uh, that you've developed to this point? Yeah. And when we were looking at our initial nine, we had five different criteria in place. And I should say, it's not me deciding who gets investment dollars or who gets sponsorship from Carry right. independently. I've got a good group of advisors, several of whom come from the world of pro golf and some of the top tours and coaches and agents and people that have forgotten more about golf than I'll ever know. And so- right. How could we lean on them to get some perspective, get some advice, as well as peers within the game? So our criteria were based on the conversations I had with this group, as well as other pros. And it came down to, we wanted to find players who won at different levels, right? It could be juniors, it could be high school, college, but do they have a track record of winning? Do they have the mindset that goes with that? To the extent that stats and data were available at the lower level tours, which oftentimes you, you get kind of a mix of what's available. How could we lean on stats or data to help drive our decisions? What do the peers say about them? What do the agents say about them in terms of their work ethic? Are they the ones that are first at the course and last to leave? Are they less disciplined with their pursuit? Do they really love golf? I'll tell you, we talked to a lot of players that were very talented, and I got to look at a lot of resumes that were very impressive. 
and you asked him like, hey, if this year didn't go according to plan or you didn't make it to the top two or next year, what would you be doing? And more often than not, the player said, well, if it doesn't work this year, I'm going to double down on my efforts. I'm going to find a way for it to work the next year. But you had a few that said, well, if it doesn't work this year, maybe I'll go to law school or maybe I'll go do something else. And to me, that was a bit of a red flag from a standpoint of their passion and commitment. And then we also leaned on perspective of a mental performance coach that I've come to know pretty well, who's working as an advisor. His name is Kyle Alderink, and he runs Mental Golf Type and, and just wanted to see with these players that are, are in the earlier stages of their career, if we can help them from a mental approach, or if we can help them really figure out where some of their games are lacking, like do we see upside with the right training in place, with the right resources? And, and so that was very helpful. Well, hey, I, I can keep going for another hour here. I got lots of questions, but I, I did want to pause here because once we finished up here on our audio podcast, you and I are going to jump on a video call where okay. we're going to talk about some other things. I really want to learn about the future of where you're going. I want to dig in deeper just so you can tell us about the personalities of the nine players that you already have in your corner here with Carrie. So tell you what, why don't we leave it at this? But before we do finish up, why don't you let our listeners know where they can learn more about Carrie, both on social media, through website, anything to get in contact with you and, uh, and learn more about Carrie. Sure. The, the best way to find us and, and to learn more is go to our website, www.carrycarry.golf, or you can follow us on Instagram, which is knowyourcarry, K-N-O-W-Y-O-U-R-C-A-R-R-Y. Excellent. Excellent. Well, as I always do in the show notes for this episode, I will include all the links to that, what Donnie had just mentioned there to make it nice and easy for all of you listeners to find these things that he just mentioned there. So, so hey, why don't we leave it at that? So I'm glad we finally had a chance to have this conversation. I love the work that you're doing here. I love the fact that someone's finally done what now seems so obvious here is why doesn't professional sport treat the athletes like startups and support them in the exact same way. Love what you're doing here, Donnie. Yep. And hey, great to see you. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Likewise, Colin, thank you very much for having me and I uh, look forward to talking some more here on YouTube. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Mod Golf Podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation about entrepreneurship in the golf industry, you can find more compelling episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen in. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on our homepage to hear about upcoming episodes and to enter our latest golf product giveaway. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Thanks very much for joining me. Bye for now.